A British Midland 737-400 is flying from London to Belfast when they start having engine problems in the air. What caused this flight to crash while they were trying to make an emergency landing? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have... you i'm sure you guys are so surprised okay well there's his little intro via phone this time brendan is a bystander and i'm not doing a damn thing today yeah i'm gonna sit back and judge you all okay thanks great you can judge me all you want that finding was bad (laughs) no that comes later that was too early. You're cute. Oh, sorry. That you, finding yeah. was good. <laughs> also later. We're not at the findings yet. Practicing. Okay. I see. Just warm up. Oh, warm up. God. Housekeeping. 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 Make sure you give us your July listener stories for fireworks and or celebrations. Check out the merch page, like always. Check out the Patreon. Monet! Because it's cool. Monet! Okay. And and that's it for that. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering British Midlands Flight 92. Thank you to Noe on Instagram and our patron Helen for recommending this crash. Cool. cool. Alright, thanks for giving us money, Helen. She's one of the good ones, too. Oh, right. (laughs) Everyone needs to be more like Helen. Helen's pretty rockin', so I can agree with that. (laughs) She gives us a lot of money, so she's amazing. She's also an amazing human being, so. Be a Helen. Be a Helen. Helen. Don't be a Brendan. Be a Helen. (laughs) Okay. So, Nick, uh, can we continue with what we're covering today? Yes, we can. Oh, my God. This happened on January the 8th of 1989. What? What a great... Well, it wasn't that great of a we, day. We weren't alive. <laughs> <laughs> how would we know? Not one of us. How I would bet, we know? I bet for some of these people listening, it was a pretty good day for them. Not these Probably. people on this flight, but... Yeah. But... Yeah. Moving on. Anyway, okay. what's next? This was a Boeing 737-400. Oh, yeah. It's a full hundy. Full hundy. That's, that's a good one. They were new at the time. Oh, yeah. This one's tail number was Golf-Oscar-Bravo-Mike-Echo. Do you remember what that was in the English? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. This was to be a flight from London Heathrow to Belfast in Northern Ireland. The captain for today's flight was Kevin Hunt. He was 43 years old. He had 13,200 hours. The first officer was David McClellan. He was 39 years old, and he had 3,300 hours total. So he had 
almost 10,000 less hours than the captain. Still both pretty experienced pilots right there. Yeah, both pretty experienced. There were to be 118 passengers and eight crew on today's flight. Why are there so many crew? I could question. I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> on a pilots. 37? Yeah. That means there's six flight attendants. Yeah, on a 737-400. Why? With 118 it's the equivalent passengers. to an 800 for those it, of you They're trying unaware. to provide yeah. the most best service. The most can. best service. The most yeah. best service. Yeah, but that's not what flight attendants are for. Yeah, you're right. They're for your safety. And you only need a turns out. <laughs> you only need a flight attendant for every 50 seats. Yeah. Come on, British Midlands. At 6.45 p.m., the aircraft arrived at Heathrow from Belfast and began preparations for the return leg. Flight 92 to Belfast took off at 7.52 p.m. The first officer was to be the pilot flying for this leg, as the captain had been the pilot flying for the leg to London Heathrow. After takeoff, the flight climbed to 6,000 feet. It held at 6,000 for two minutes before being cleared to climb to 12,000 feet. Shortly after this, at 7.58 p.m., the flight was cleared to flight level 350 or 35,000 feet and direct to the Trent VOR. At 8.05 p.m. and 5 seconds, the flight was climbing through 28,300 feet when the airplane suddenly began to experience a heavy vibration and the smell of smoke began to fill the cabin and cockpit quickly. Not a good thing. No. There were no oral or visual warnings in the cockpit for the crew. The captain believed that the smoke was coming from the air conditioning system. The captain took over control of the airplane, disengaged the autopilot. The captain then instructed the first officer, quote, Okay, throttle it back, end quote, 19 seconds after the vibration began. The autothrottle was then disengaged, and the throttle was pulled back on the right or number two engine. That's on the starboard side. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Boats. Boats and airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> Between the disengagement of the autopilot and the disengagement of the autothrottle, which was 11 seconds, the aircraft rolled 16 degrees to the left without a correction from either of the flight crew. Within one to two seconds of the throttle back of the number two throttle, the aircraft rolled back to level. The left engine also reduced in throttle slightly when the autothrottle disengaged. The vibrations and the smoke seemingly stopped after this was done. The first officer immediately informed the London Air Traffic Control Center that they had an emergency that appeared to be an engine fire. The captain then instructed the first officer to shut down the number two engine 43 seconds after the initiation of the vibration. The first officer did not immediately shut down the engine, however, after the captain said, quote, Seems to be running all right now. Let's see if it comes in, end quote. The first officer then became preoccupied talking to the air traffic controller as they gave the crew the aircraft position and asked them which alternate airport they would prefer. The first officer told the air traffic controller that they would likely go to the East Midlands airport, but told them to stand by. About the same time, a cabin crew member made an announcement over the PA instructing the passengers to fasten their seatbelts. The first officer then told the captain that he was going to begin the engine failure and shutdown checklists. Simultaneously, the captain stated that, quote, Seems we have stabilized. We've still got the smoke, end quote. The checklist was paused while the captain called the British Midlands Airlines operations at East Midlands Airport to advise the company of the situation they were having to deal with. Very smart. Yes. Two minutes and seven seconds after the initial vibrations and during a short pause in radio communications with operations, the fuel cutoff switch for the number two engine was switched to off finally shutting down the number two engine. A moment later, 
operations instructed the crew, quote, divert to East Midlands, please, end quote. The captain noticed the smoke seemed to clear from the cockpit as soon as the number two engine was shut down. Then the captain called the lead cabin crew member, or the flight service manager, the FSM, to the flight deck and asked, quote, did you get smoke in the cabin back there? And the FSM stated, quote, we did, yes, end quote. The captain then instructed him to clear the cabin and pack everything up, meaning they were going to go for an emergency landing. About a minute later, the FSM returned to the flight deck and said, quote, Sorry to trouble you. The passengers are very, very panicky. End quote. Not something you usually want to hear as a flight crew. is like, the situation going on is making your passengers super panicky. Well, when you see smoke enter the That's cabin, a, yeah. you're yeah, like, Yeah, it's fair. Uh, what's going on? I probably even panic a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, um, this doesn't happen. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> not, not normally. Not normally. Not normally. I feel uncomfortable. Excuse me, yeah. miss. Is this is this normal? <laughs> <laughs> the flight attendant button. Excuse me. Um, were you aware that there's smoke? <laughs> yeah. oh. Is this 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 cabin thing going on? Is this normal? What what about that? <laughs> <laughs> the captain then broadcast a message over the PA stating that there was trouble with the right engine, which had produced some smoke in the cabin, and then told them that the engine was now shut down and they were diverting to East Midlands, landing in about 10 minutes. The number two engine was shut down while the airplane was only five nautical miles south of East Midlands Airport. Now, mind you, they're still too high to land within five miles, though. Yeah. Gotta drop some altitude. Gotta lose some altitude. The air traffic controller had cleared the flight to make a right turn and descend to 10,000 feet. The London air traffic controller then passed the flight off to Manchester ATC, Manchester ATC gave the flight several instructions to line them up with the center line of the localizer approach, or the ILS, for runway 27 at East Midlands. During the whole descent and approach, the captain did not engage the autopilot again. He just hand-flew the airplane, or flew it manually. The first officer handled the radio communications. The workload was very high, the whole descent and the approach. So from the moment the vibration happened, they began having a lot of workload. Yeah, a lot Which to do. Is, yeah, you have to figure out where the smoke's coming from, where the vibration's coming from. Yeah, trouble solved. Checklist. Yeah, I mean, mind and you, they were only 20 nautical miles from East Midlands when the vibrations began. So they weren't very far away from their landing point in the end. The first officer got weather information for the airport, and he attempted to program the approach procedure into the flight computer, but without success. This kept the first officer busy for about two minutes. At 8.12 p.m. and 28 seconds... The crew attempted to debunk the situation, the captain stating, quote, Now, what indications did we actually get? Just rapid vibrations in the airplane, smoke, end quote. This discussion was interrupted by the air traffic controller instructing the flight to make another turn and descend to 4,000 feet and change frequencies to the East Midlands approach control. The flight crew then began the one-engine inoperative descent and approach checklist, they were again interrupted from completing this checklist due to the air traffic control communications. The approach ATC asked the captain to make a test call to the emergency crews, or the fire crews, on the ground, and he did this, but with no response. A test call meaning to make sure that they're there? To just call them over the radio just so they can have communication. And make they sure that they, Yeah, they make sure everything's working well. And yeah. What not? Yeah. 
The approach checklist was completed at 8.17 p.m. and 33 seconds when the aircraft was 15 nautical miles from touchdown and descending through 6,500 feet. So at this point, they have gone out away from the airport again to come in for an approach. Basically, they've flown over the airport, made a turn, and they're coming in. A minute later, the flight was given another heading change in order to take the flight south of the center line to allow them more time to descend and approach the airport. The captain then called for flaps one. As the airplane was 13 nautical miles from the airport and descending through 3,000 feet, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn back to the center line of the localizer approach. 8.20 p.m. in three seconds. During the turn, power was added to the left engine momentarily, and the airplane began vibrating a bit again. The aircraft was cleared to descend to 2,000 feet. The captain began a slow descent. He then called for flaps 2, then flaps 5, back-to-back. After reaching the center line of the localizer at 2,000 feet, the captain called for the landing gear to be extended. As the flight passed the outer marker on the approach, so a marker along the approach, about 4.3 nautical miles from the runway on final approach, the captain called for flaps 15, 15 degrees that is. A minute later at 8.23 p.m. and 49 seconds as the aircraft was 2.4 nautical miles out at 900 feet, the left engine abruptly decreased in power. The captain immediately called for the number two engine to be restarted, so the engine on the right. The first officer attempted to restart the number two engine. The captain then raised the nose of the aircraft to try to reach the runway. 17 seconds after the power loss, an engine fire warning began sounding in in the cockpit. Not a good thing. No. Seven seconds later, the ground proximity warning system glide slope warning sounded and continued for the remainder of the flight. The airplane had fallen below the glide path, so they were too low. The captain then ordered the first officer to carry out the engine fire procedure. At 8.24 p.m. and 33 seconds, the captain broadcast over the PA to the passengers, quote, prepare for crash landing, end quote, repeating this phrase. Two seconds later, the airspeed fell below 125 knots, the speed at which the stall warning began sounding and the stick shaker activated. At 8.24 p.m. and 43 seconds, the aircraft struck the ground at 115 knots. Oof. The airplane struck the ground in a nose-high attitude in a field on the east side of the M1 motorway, a major motorway through the area. First, before breaking through some trees, crossing the highway, and striking a large embankment on the west side of the motorway. The airplane immediately broke apart into several large pieces coming to rest just beside the motorway. They were only about a half mile from the runway. Oof. Rough. My brain keeps going through crashes we've already covered Mm -hmm. that could have been this. Mm Mm-hmm. There are a lot of related things here, but there's nothing in particular that's actually exactly like this. Yeah, it's uh, like, I can't remember if we've covered some of these, or if I saw them on an Air Disasters episode, or if it's a little bit of both. You definitely saw this Air Disasters episode? Yes. Because it's in season eight. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. You will remember when I reveal the cause, and then you'll get mad. Okay. This cool. one is also very famous if you live in... In the UK. This one is very well known. 47 of the passengers on board perished in the crash. 66 of the passengers and one infant were severely injured. And four passengers were minorly injured. Seven crew members were severely injured. And one was minorly injured. Miranda's looking at the picture. Yeah. Guess what? It broke up into three parts. So in total, 47 people perished. Uh, All eight crew members lived, but most were severely injured. 
and most of the surviving passengers were also severely injured. All in all, I'm amazed there weren't more that perished in this, yeah. because this was a huge impact. Yikes. Fantastic okay. story, Nick. Thanks! I was super engaged the entire time. Obviously. This investigation was performed by the United Kingdom's Air Accidents Investigation Branch. Otherwise known as, what did I say? <laughs> British Aviation or Aviation, aviation British. British. The oh Aviation British. Yeah, it's not a thing. The Aviation, aviation British people. That wasn't a thing. <laughs> and the report was submitted in a formal letter, which I am electing to read because Miranda will probably have the exact same reaction I did. Two, the Right Honorable Cecil Parkinson, Secretary of State for Transport. Sir, I have the honor to submit the report by Mr. E.J. Trimble, an inspector of accidents, on the circumstances of the accident to British Midland Airways Boeing 737-400, which occurred near Kegworth, Leicestershire. Leicestershire. Very good. On January 8th, 1989. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, D.A. Cooper. Is that where that came from? I don't know. I have the honor to be your obedient servant. A dot bird. A dot ham. I'm so, guessing that's a Hamilton reference. Yes, yeah. yes it is. It could just be a popular phrase. It's a common it phrase. I'm sure it probably but is. But it's been stuck in my head all day, so I wanted her to suffer the same fate. It's a very, right. very, 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 it's, very, it's very common phrase. It's a weird common phrase because we don't hear it a lot in well, the United States. And quite frankly, it doesn't make any sense. Back in old time England, it well, probably yeah. was. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, I mean, Hamilton was. England. Yes. People who came here from England. Both black boxes were found and were taken to be read elsewhere. Damn it. Before even examining the wreckage, investigators were able to tell a lot regarding the impact sequence. The crew was so close to the runway, literally almost there. They could see the oh, runway. Oh no, they were so close. They almost hit the approach lighting system. Uh, they yeah, did. but they were off center. They, well, they had other things to worry about. That's yeah, fine. You know, the field, the trees, and then the highway. The highway they didn't hit. Yeah, yeah, they hit right before the highway. Well, right after the highway. I'll get into it. Well, it's like in between. Right now. The aircraft struck the east embankment first on the opposite side of the highway from the runway. The landing gear and tail struck the ground at about the same time, and the plane was pitched up between 2.6 and 5 degrees. And the tail skid, which is a little bumper on the tail for tail strikes, and the APU door separated. It then cut through some trees leading down to the highway, leaving behind the wings, leading edges, and engine cowlings. It then somehow managed to fly exceptionally low above the highway and didn't hit any cars. The left wing struck a lamppost, severing six feet off the end. The second and major impact was when the nose impacted the western embankment, which crushed, and then both engines hit and failed upwards, and the whole plane slid up the embankment. And somehow the crew lived, even though they struck nose first into the embankment. It is just unbelievable. Yeah, usually it's like, bam, death. That is it. Um, the captain did have a spinal injury, I he believe. He did, yes. And That's, uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And I don't recall what injuries the first officer had. His were mostly minor. So that was the M1 north and southbound. What was the other road that was on the other side of the... It is the... A-453. Oh, yeah, that's right. I knew that. <laughs> totally. I'm sure you did. The A-453, which most second most popular one compared to the, the M1. M1. Yeah. Okay. Running parallel, <laughs> yes. Maybe. For that for that you know, portion of time, but it also goes, you know, goes to other places that the M1 doesn't, like yes. um, other yeah. England-y places. Yes. <laughs> other England-y places. Yeah, that's nice. So for some reason, they didn't have enough power to actually make it to the runway, seemingly. Well, yeah, they didn't make it to the runway. No. 
<laughs> and actually, you can see in this picture how the tail is kind of pointed butt end up in the air. Done flipped over. There was a lot of fear of it sliding back down the embankment, so they actually tied it to the trees. They tied it to the trees because they didn't want it to slide down onto the highway or crush anybody inside. That's legit. That was one of their first priorities when they got there, other than getting people out as they could. Try to use that rear exit. The slide's just going to go in the middle of nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Empty space. Investigators performed interviews with air traffic control in lieu of the pilots because both were too injured to be immediately interviewed. And ATC revealed that there was an engine fire, which begs the question, why couldn't they have just landed with one engine? It's designed to do that. Yeah. So investigators went to the engines. Both were clogged with earth and tree, which, given the circumstances, was expected. But neither showed evidence of being at working power during impact. Did they shut off the wrong engine? And one engine did indeed show evidence of fire damage. So investigators began brainstorming. What would cause both engines to fail? Turns out we've covered quite a few of these incidents, so we can start going through these too. We just covered a bird strike series. So it was a bird strike. Calling it. <laughs> <laughs> we just we picked up where we left off. <laughs> so investigators took a UV light to the inside looking for biological material and came up with nothing. Damn it! <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> so close! So close. So were the fuel tanks maybe empty, reminiscent of the Gimli glider? That's it. No, there was Shh. definitely still fuel. <laughs> was there something in the fuel? Contaminants, maybe? Yes, if there's fuel, it's gotta be contaminants. Nope, not that either. Oh, man! <laughs> not very, doing very well. Miraculously, even though the airplane still had a lot of fuel on board, it also didn't burn. Yeah. That it was designed to not do that when the engines got ripped off. Which is, yes, fortunate, but it turns out most airplanes still explode. So, we'll pause on that for a second. Another part of the investigation team had been tasked with gathering witness statements, and they revealed something interesting. The engines had been making awful, grinding metallic sounds, and some witnesses described burning pieces falling from the aircraft above Sutton Bonington. Would you like me to describe the <laughs> crunching sound? No. <laughs> so there were burning pieces falling above Sutton Bonington, two nautical miles short of the accident site. Ground searches, which literally they were like going through with their fingers on the ground to find pieces, near a piggery, or a pig farm, Hell yeah. At the Sutton Bonington Agricultural College, turned up pieces of the fan blades, as well as the fan case acoustic liner, along with its bolts and washers. A couple of days later, the two black boxes data came back and showed that the right engine stopped and the left engine gave out 15 minutes later. The two engines did not fail at the same time. So investigators listened to the CVR to understand the crew's actions at the time. The noise was heard in the cabin per interviews as a series of thuds, and the FDR showed the thuds as stalling in the fan and or low-pressure compressor. In addition to the noise and vibration heard on the CVR, the FDR recorded lateral and longitudinal acceleration, indicating shuddering. Then there was the smell of smoke, and possibly some visible smoke in the cockpit, which the pilots interpreted as a serious engine malfunction with a fire, and they acted very quickly. Neither pilot was able to have assimilated from the instruments any indication of malfunction, although investigators' tests showed no issue with the instruments, and they should have shown the variations indicative of an engine surge. What was exactly said? The first officer said, got a fire. Then the autopilot disconnected, and he said, it's a fire coming through. The captain then said, which one is it? 
The first officer responded, it's the, it's the right one. And the captain said, okay, throttle it back. Investigators were very confused by this. They were looking at the FDR while listening to the CVR. The engine showing the malfunction was the left one. I was gonna say, not the right one. And he really did say, he really did say, it's It's the the left, it's it's the the right right one. one. That's what he said. How would they know? Don't they get an indication in the cockpit which one it is? I will get into it. (laughs) It's a whole thing. So that's the shuddering in the number one engine. The left. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I know you probably have a million questions. You just did. The first officer was unable to remember what exactly he saw on the instruments that led him to think it's the right engine, so it's impossible to know why he made such a mistake for sure. His hesitation may have been from difficulty trying to read the instruments with the vibration, which, by the way, is not the first time that's been reported, and he had only six seconds between the surges to scan all the instruments. But he had no reason to think he was wrong in this assessment, since once they pulled the throttle back, the vibration ceased. Yeah, that's... A Weird, confusing. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, I believe this was the first. I don't know. Did they have digital displays in this one, or is this still analog? They had LED displays. They had digital displays, which yeah. is part of my analysis. <clears throat> it is not uh-huh. the same as the NG displays. Right. The captain had another reason for thinking it was engine two with the fault. In previous planes he had flown, the air conditioning was tied to the right engine, so it made sense that the fault was in the right engine since there was smoke coming from the AC. Now, this assessment would have been correct for previous aircraft he had flown, but it's flawed in this case because the brand new 737-400 also has conditioning air come from the engine number one. The damn 200. Yep. And the 100. Yep. Investigators also noted that they thought the crew acted too quickly and should have taken more time to diagnose what was happening. That was just something thrown in there. Uh. Well, it's kind of a confirmation bias problem because yeah. they That's exactly back. what I said. Yes, you it's very literally true. pull back the second the right engine and it stopped. So they're like, We uh, fixed the problem. Cool. All right. But they didn't fix the <gasps> they problem. They didn't fix the problem. <laughs> now, why did the engine truly at fault seem to recover? That's really what led the crew into this rabbit hole train of thought if uh, the plane seemed to confirm their thought that the right engine was to blame. The flight data recorder confirmed that engine one did calm down after the engine two throttle was reduced. That being said, not all was well. A vibration continued in the engine and was felt in the cabin, but the crew was never made aware of it. And the smell of burning did not continue. The captain said, seems to be running all right now, despite the maximum reading on the engine number one vibration instrument, as well as the fluctuating fuel flow. The flight data recorder showed that the vibration measurement of engine one was at its maximum for three minutes until they throttled back for descent, and it went unnoticed by either pilot, which led investigators to think it's a training problem. Turns out, neither training for either pilot drew their attention to the new airborne vibration monitoring system on the new 737. Yes, they should have been made aware of it via an operations manual bulletin put out in March of 88, but it only drew attention to them implicitly. Nick will cover that a little more in recommendations. Yep. Now, part of what is so new about the system is it's an electronic display rather than a mechanical pointer. Furthermore, the pointers on the vibration indicator are the same color as the display above it, which is the oil quantity display, making it even less clear that the vibration was at its max. 
Quote, in the view of the limited attention both pilots appear to have given the vibration indicators, it is a matter of conjecture whether or not they would have failed to notice such a maximum reading on the mechanical pointer of a hybrid display, clearly separate from any other distracting indication. But there can be little doubt that it would have been easier to see, end quote. Even I had trouble figuring out the difference between the two displays when I looked at it the first time, so I get it. Yeah, also, why didn't they put it on the inside of the dial? I feel like that's just well, that, a design they, problem. They changed that with the next gen. Yeah, they did. The next gen, everything changed. Because they didn't even have the... Because uh, those are like fixed dials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the, the next gen, it was all just a digital display. And the green bar that you see on most of them would just move. Oh, okay. Yeah. And if it went up to the yellow or the red, it would just turn yellow turn or yellow red. Turn yellow or red. In this case, literally the middle isn't like the... The white and green portions are all fixed. They're non-digital. But the little green marks were digital. Right. And all they were were just actually lights. It would just move to the next set of lights all the way around. Yeah, but I feel like you could have put them on the inside, yeah, if they, if not they move the outside. The, move the numbers to the outside, put the line on the inside. It would make it, it easier. It would have made it easier. It's a whole human factors argument. What's easier to see in a moment of crisis? That's fair. Right? And the fun thing is they never changed this on the uh, standard 737s. Yep. Another possibility as far as human factors that has some weight to it is the primary display was on the left side of the panel and the secondary instruments, including the vibration display, were on the right side. So could this have led a quick glance to think it was a right engine failure since it was on the right side? This I'm not so sure of, but the report did present an alternative setup to the instruments where the primary displays were in the middle and the secondary displays on either side, separating the left and right engines. So that all of engine two was on the right and all of engine one was on the left. Makes sense. I think this, I personally think this is more intuitive, but the industry doesn't care what I think and has kept the primary on the left and secondary. I don't know if I like that as much because if you're trying to figure out which vibration you have, you got to dart your eyes back and forth pretty quickly. But it's easier to tell which side it's on. At a quick glance. Right. So, it doesn't matter what we think. Oh, it matters what we think. <laughs> well, it's too late now. Because it's not like that anymore yes. anyway. Well, we, we could have done something about it. Now, you may think that the misidentification may have been the start to the accident sequence, but the decision to throttle back Engine 2 did not actually lead to the accident. In fact, this would have been the appropriate procedure if they truly didn't have any instrument indication of what went wrong. Pull one engine back then see if something happens, then do the other and see if something happens. It is highly likely that they would have realized that Engine 1 was truly the culprit if it weren't for one thing that made it stop surging when Engine 2's throttle was pulled back. Doing so disconnected the auto throttle. This is what caused the surging to stop, because it pulled back the throttle ever so slightly. So that's where the confirmation bias came from. Oh, just that little bit of pullback caused Mm -hmm. it to stop. Okay. Yep, because it... Fell into a... A more balanced state. Yeah, a more balanced state when it reduced power. Yeah, it was power. still grinding and being horrible. Which they would have been able to find out, actually, if they looked at their vibrations, because it was still above normal. Well, it was showing at the maximum amount. Yes. Even after they pulled back. <laughs> Can you imagine being a passenger looking out in the wing? <laughs> the engine's oh. just going... <laughs> it wasn't vibrating that hard anymore. It was... It was more that it was on fire and falling apart. Well, the passenger didn't say anything. Yes, that's a big point that'll Which come we'll up later. Which we'll get to later. So why did Engine 1 have issues in the first place? Upon further examination of the engines, investigators made some interesting discoveries. 
In the right engine, all of the damage seemed to be from impact. All of the fan blades, though damaged, were contained within the engine, and the acoustic lining panels showed no sign of pre-impact damage. There was no evidence of overheating, no distress or malfunction in the combustion section, no evidence of foreign object damage, no wear or overheating in the bearings, no failure or leakage of lubrication or cooling systems, no evidence of pre-crash distress. It was a fully working, low-time engine with little or no rotational energy at impact. Now, conversely, the left engine. The left engine had a lot of the same impact damage as the right engine, you know, since they both uh, impacted. What? But there were some notable differences. All stages of the core compressor had hard object damage. There was fire damage in the fan case and the underside of the core around a combustion nozzle attachment, the inside of the high-pressure compressor case, and the inside of the low-pressure shaft. Most of the acoustic lining panels had been torn out, and the rest were burned. Additionally, there were a number of impact points internally that showed fan blade fragments released from the fan while it was rotating. It took some work and analysis, but investigators were eventually able to match the fragments found at the piggery to the fan blades in the left engine. There was considerable hard object damage to the blades with bending and folding to several blades. Of the 38 blades, only 9 were still at full length. Five had a single failure between the middle and the tip, 11 were in two or more pieces, and one was broken near the root. Almost all of the failure was found to be overload failures in either bending or a combination of bending and torsion. Note, I said almost all. One of the pieces found at the piggery was found further back in the trail, fan blade number 17. It was observed to be very flat, a feature indicative of a particular kind of fracture. Fatigue. Ah, and welcome back to the Fatigue <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> That's where we get back in common with our original topic. <laughs> so, it was examined both with the naked eye as well as a scanning electron microscope, and investigators found that it was a high-cycle fatigue fracture originating from a point on the concave face of the blade, one to one and a half millimeters aft of the leading edge. It extended to about mid-span before the fracture became overload in tension. Unfortunately, they could not determine the source of the original fracture because of the severe damage. The surface suffered a hard blow and obliterated the original blade surface, so there wasn't any piece of the original fatigue present. Investigators were able to determine that it would have had to have been a small but particularly sharp surface damaged with a huge stress concentration factor but there was no available information on how long it existed or if it was the only failure in the immediate area. Now, what loading was it repeatedly experiencing so much that it failed so early in the life of the airplane? This airplane only had 521 hours on it. It's pretty short yeah, that's a, that's a little concerning that there's a fatigue fracture on something that, that is that And not just a new. fatigue fracture, but a high cycle fatigue fracture. That's like over 10,000 loadings. Like Did it they'd come have to from a different engine? Nope. Brand new brand new engine? I will get into it. Did they practice with that engine on a different plane? Did they fuck up the materials in said engine? No. Did they uh bend it with a pitchfork? <laughs> Why a pitchfork? I, that's the first thing that came to mind at the piggery. Cuz we're talking about pigs. <laughs> Okay, that particular region of the fan blade was where certain vibration testing was done, but the inherent vibration 
shouldn't have been enough to propagate a crack so quickly, which is how it got certified. Right? It was tested during certification with strain gauges everywhere to detect vibration to prove that normal engine operation did not produce unacceptable levels of vibration. However, <gasps> these tests were done at very high speeds at sea level. Oh. Frickin' sea level. And they yeah. had to use a variable fan nozzle to avoid driving the core engine beyond its limits, meaning it was actually not representative of true engine activity at altitude. But they believed any instability would show up anyway, albeit less so. And if something did happen, they would do a more realistic test at altitude to establish true stresses in actual conditions. But nothing weird happened in the sea level setting, and the manufacturers and certificating authorities were satisfied. Investigators then found that this was not the first time that this kind of fan blade failure occurred on this engine. This kind of engine, rather. And the other ones all happened in the same place and at about the same number of flight cycles. Therefore, there was a unique vibratory mode which occurred regularly at altitude. Once investigators figured this out, they grounded the other 99 737-400s and had them modified to, you know, not have this problem. Yeah. This is not a problem on the 300s? Not that I found. Didn't say anything about it. Interesting. Same engine. Same yes. same airplane, just a little shorter. It might have just been a batch. I don't Maybe. know. Maybe. Uh, who knows? Oh, yeah, because this airplane was new. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. This separation of the outer panel of the fan blade would have caused a disturbance in airflow, and this is what caused the initial vibration and stalling. The imbalance in the fan would have also led blade tips to rub on the tip path seals, which would have created the smells of rubber and hot metal reported by survivors. In what was left of the acoustic lining, there were deep cuts. It is suspected that this bit of fan blade embedded itself and wasn't sucked into the rest of the engine to cause more damage. At least not yet. As the crew increased engine power, you might recall that was when everything went wrong. And this was the point in the flight path where the piggery was. <gasps> it was determined that the increase in engine power sucked the fan blade part along with other parts of the acoustic liner and subsequent broken fan blades into the engine, causing further deterioration of performance. Friggin' pigs. <laughs> it's difficult to determine the exact order of events within the engine given the extent of the damage. The source of the fire would have been the separation of blade 6, and it became trapped between the fan blade tips and the embradable liner. It would have been a, quote, potential source of ignition for both fire zones by penetration of the intake duct into the fan case cowl and by passage down the fan exhaust to ignite fuel and oil, atomizing from the trailing edge of the bypass duct, end quote. So there's everything. I don't remember this one. Oh, where they shut off the wrong engine? Well, I do remember they shut off the wrong engine. I remember you exclaiming to me how upset you were. Yeah, I'm a little... Listen, I'm, I'm a little more calm because... <laughs> You've simmered down? Well, it was, I mean, with, it's hard to tell. Yeah, like, to be fair, I mean, I realize that they're in a situation where it's high stress and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Did they make a hasty decision? Maybe, but they got confirmation bias. Yep. Because it stopped once they pulled the engine Did it back. say how long they were flying this airplane? How long these guys were flying this airplane? Yes. Between the two of them, they had 1,000 hours total on the type. On the 737, period. Not uh, on this particular generation. On this generation, I believe one of them only had, like, 96 hours. Oh, okay. So, I mean, They're relatively, relatively new. But that's really not an excuse, because the, the amount of training they go through to 
fly a new airplane. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's and quite if, expensive. If the training wasn't yeah. up to date, that's not their fault. That's the airline's so, fault. So right. the one thing that was mentioned in the training and I mentioned earlier was they didn't specifically make note of the new vibration measurement system. They, their attention was not drawn to it. They'd never really had to look at it before. <clears throat> MCAS. Similar to the MCAS. Yeah, um, Bowen's having a real pitch problem. <laughs> yeah, they really are having a big pitch of a problem. I see what you did there. <laughs> so I'm kind of in the defense of the pilots at this point because... Understanding more about what happened, like, yeah. I get it. If, it. if you get confirmation bias, like, you think you fixed the problem. I think once it started to be not like when they were starting to lose control again, yeah. I would have figured out, oh, maybe we turned off the wrong engine. Well, and that's kind of what the captain thought and why he asked the first officer to try to relight the right engine, but right. it was too late. Yeah. They simply didn't have time. So kind of the last little bit that I have is a single sentence. Both pilots were fired. That's, I don't know. That seems a little bit harsh. Good for them. Find somewhere else to work. Yeah. Actually, you know what? <laughs> You're right. The problem is when you get fired like that, a it's lot hard of to find you another can't place find to work. another job. Yeah. To be fair, one of them had a really bad back injury. So. Yes, that is also true. But I don't know. I, I'm conflicted on actions after the incident because I, I understand why they were placed with the blame to some extent, but I also feel like it wasn't entirely their fault. No, there was... To be fair, the main problem here was the fatigue factor. And that's really whoever manufactured the engine. So, CFM. Yeah, that's their fault, not the airline or the pilot's fault. I, don't even, I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily CFM's fault because it was certificated the way, as was. And multiple certification bodies signed off on it, said, it's good to go. You didn't test it at altitude. It's fine. That's kind of where I have a problem. Yeah. Like, like, if you're looking at the root root of the problem, new aircraft shouldn't have fatigue fractures. Nope. Brand new aircraft. Yeah. yeah. So, Agreed. I'll get off my soapbox. Y'all can listen to an ad real quick, and we'll be back with findings, cause, and recommendations. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I hope you enjoyed the commercial about something super thrilling. It was great. I'm sure it was super thrilling. We really enjoyed listening to it. If you're a patron, you didn't have to listen to it. That's yeah, because right. you give us money, and ads give us money. <laughs> so to be we forward. like money. Way to be forward. Everyone knows ads give you money. Yes. They do help us operate. Findings? Okay, let's do, <laughs> let's do some findings. There were 51 of these. Ew. How many of them are we doing? Not 51. Oh, man. <laughs> Six. Oh, what's the point? I don't know. But I didn't count up, but it's definitely not 51. It's maybe like half of that listeners i am i apologize you came here for some quality <laughs> findings and uh, we have 25 and a half we've we've half <laughs> it i do apologize <laughs> i am i'm not reading 51 findings especially when you'll get an extra one because the first one is the aircraft had a valid certificate and airworthiness in the transport category passenger and had been maintained in accordance with an approved schedule boom and i don't think it should have true well, actually that's, you're not wrong. Too, <laughs> that's too damn bad
They found that the flight deck crew experienced moderate to severe engine-induced vibration and shuddering accompanied by smoke and or smell of fire. Nick, we as, know that. As the aircraft climbed through flight level 283, the combination of symptoms was outside their training or experience, and they responded urgently by disengaging the autothrottles and, uh, and throttling back the number two engine, which was running satisfactorily. See, if it was outside of what they were used to, why did they get fired? Yeah. That's the thing. Then that's not their fault. I agree. So this is back in aviation where basically if you made a mistake, you're out. Yeah, because they had so many pilots back then. Yeah, it wasn't as big of a deal. Now that you have unions, you can't just do that. Yeah. They found that after the auto throttle was disengaged and whilst the number two engine was running down, the number one engine recovered from the compressor stalls and began to settle at a slightly lower fan speed. This reduced the shuddering apparent on the flight deck, convincing the commander, or the captain, that they had correctly identified the number two engine as the source of the problem. So that whole trick of the brain, it was actually the number one engine, all that. They found that the first officer reported the emergency to the air traffic controller, indicating that they had an engine fire and intended to shut an engine down. Although, there had been no fire warning from the engine fire detection system. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah, that's a whole thing. He shut down the engine with no actual warning. What'd you say, Christy? His only indication was smoke. Yep. So I didn't get into any of the crew's actions because I had a hell of a time covering what I did. So this is the time where we get into it. It's more of a, why didn't they get an indication that the left engine was on fire? I guess it technically wasn't. Yet? Technically on fire. Yet. Not internally. They found that whilst the commander's decision to divert to East Midlands Airport to land with the minimum of delay was correct... He thereby incurred a high cockpit workload, which precluded any effective review of the emergency or the actions he had taken. Well, also, operations told him to go there. Yes, operations did tell him to go there. Did that guy get fired, too? No, probably not. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, so they had a heavy workload because they had to go somewhere really nearby and had no time to get there. And they had a lot to do. They kept getting interrupted, so they were having a hard time with checklists and thoughts. Well, and, and that's like another that. thing, too. Like, they, not only did they have a high workload, they were trying to get, ev- like, the plane down safely and land at the airport they were supposed to. So, I mean, considering that the engine shuttering, quote-unquote, stopped, or the smoke stopped. Yeah. It kind of makes sense that they just kept moving on because yep. they kept having to doing checklists, and then they had to land, and then they had to do a landing checklist. Well, and, and all at that. one point they actually paused, and the captain asked, "Well, like, what do we got? What are the symptoms?" And started listing them off. But he got interrupted by ATC, and then never finished that train of thought. Well, and with a high stress situation yeah. like that, it makes sense. Investigators yeah. in the, when they were interviewed for the air disasters episode said that they wished every time they listened to it that that would change, that he would just finish his train of thought because they probably would have figured it out. Yeah, but because they kept getting interrupted, and they're in a high stress situation, and they're trying to land the aircraft, it's a it's a whole thing. I don't blame him. So this next finding is kind of long, but I'm going to read the whole thing because there's actually two different parts to this, and both are important. They found that the flight crew did not assimilate the readings on the engine instruments before they decided to throttle back the number two engine. After throttling back the number two engine, they did not assimilate the maximum vibration indications apparent on the number one engine before they shut down the number two engine two minutes, seven seconds after the onset of vibration, and five nautical miles from the East Midlands Airport. The aircraft checklist gave separate drills for high vibration and for smoke, but contained no drill for a combination of both. So, they're saying, basically, they 
obviously shut down the wrong engine because they didn't really look at their instruments correctly. They didn't notice the really high vibration in the left engine, and so they shut down the right one. And the checklist that they had, which, by the way, they didn't complete correctly anyways, had different procedures for smoke and for vibration, but there was not one for both, Yeah, which they were experiencing both. They found that the captain remained unaware of the blue sparks and flames which had issued from the number one engine, that's a weird way of putting things, during the period of heavy vibration and which had been observed by many passengers and the three aft cabin crew. And that's why you said, when you see something, say, say something. something. If you see something wrong with the engines, by the way, please tell somebody. Don't you just... See, you see something flying off the wing, tell somebody. And one <laughs> of the passengers got interviewed for the Air Disasters episode, and he's like, yeah, I saw this, but I figured the crew knew what they were doing. I'm like, they, already, they don't know. Because you said the, the, the captain made an announcement saying they had a problem with the right engine. Yeah, and yeah. If I'm looking over at the left engine, it's still in And he was stuff. sitting on the left side of the plane. And he was super confused. He was like, did they mean the left side? They know what they're doing, I hope. Yeah, if you ever hear that, if you... Th- first of all, crews are human. They make mistakes, right? Clearly, because that's what happened here. Yep. But if you... We talked about this on uh, Hawaiian, too, I think. With the crack. Yeah, because she saw it when she was boarding on the jet yeah. stairs. If you see something you think is abnormal, please say something to the crew. Or the cabin crew, at least. Uh, say, is that, spo- is that normal? <laughs> in this situation, if the cabin crew did notice it, they still didn't tell anyone. So. That's true. And yep. just to say that everyone should do this, not just passengers. But, but passengers are a huge resource in that regard. Yeah, if you see something weird going on or you think something's weird, feel free to ask. Yeah. And the flight crew, or the the cabin crew, should ask the flight crew if it's a problem. So, this next one's kind of a trip. Because this is the one part where, to me, crew resource management broke down for sure. And it's just a whole... I don't know, they were hoping for a miracle. Let's put it that way. They found that the captain immediately called for the first officer to relight the number two engine. The attempted restart was not successful probably because there was insufficient bleed air pressure from the number one engine, pressure air from the APU was not connected, and the bleed air cross-feed valve was closed. Even if pressure air had been available, it is unlikely that power could have been obtained from the number two engine before the aircraft hit the ground. Yeah, they wanted to do this basically a minute before touchdown. They were trying to restart the number two engine. It wasn't going to happen, for a number of reasons, because usually an engine restart in the air also requires altitude and speed, two things they didn't have. So already, it wasn't going to work from that point on. So unfortunately, I think a big breakdown of crew resource management happened here because the captain then had the first officer's attention completely taken over by restarting this number two engine, which just wasn't going to happen in the most critical point in this flight. Not that maybe he could have done anything to save this airplane because they were pretty much done. There was nothing they could do, but unfortunately, it's just one of those things like, eh, that was a bad decision. It wasn't going to happen. They didn't have anything set up in a procedure to actually restart that engine anyway. They should have come to that conclusion earlier, which I don't know if they could have, right? We, we talked yeah. about this. I mean, I think he made a split-second decision because he, th- he figured out too late what was the problem. Yes. And you can't just shut off another engine when you don't have another engine running, right? Exactly. Then you just go... Right, which <laughs> to the ground. Pretty much is what happened. Wait, anyway, and yeah, I, I would agree that 
I think making that decision wasn't a great decision, but I think he did it because it was a last-ditch effort at trying to save them in the aircraft. A Hail Mary, if you will. Yeah. Yes. They found that the change from hybrid electromechanical instruments to LED displays for engine indications has reduced conspicuity, particularly in respect of the engine vibration indicators. Right? No additional vibration alerting system was fitted that could have highlighted to the pilots which of the two engines was vibrating excessively. Right. This is actually a big thing because this changed as we got into the more digital age of the airplanes. digital era, yeah. With the NGs where they can have a whole system display, it tells them everything. That's yeah, the flight director on. system is just all digital. Yeah, where you have the EFIS and the, all that where it tells you a lot more about what's going on with your engines. They look the cockpits in the NGs look so much nicer than the old analog cockpits. Now in the, now in the Max, <laughs> oh. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> as much as you can hit on the Max and hate on it, that cockpit is nice. Oh, so good. It's nothing but big glass. Mm. Are you uncomfortable? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You like big Do glass? We need to you leave cannot the room. lie. Big glass, and I cannot lie. <laughs> I think we need to leave. Need to leave the room. <laughs> I like big glass with that kid. They found that although the cabin crew immediately became aware of heavy vibration at the onset of the emergency, and three aft cabin crews saw flames emanating from the number one engine, this information was not communicated to the pilots. So again, that whole thing... Communicate to the pilots! Pilots! They didn't do that. pilots! They found that the number one engine suffered fatigue of one of its fan blades, which caused detachment of the blade outer panel. This led to a series of compressor stalls over a period of 22 seconds until the engine autothrottle was disengaged. Cool. Next. They found that the severe mechanical imbalance which arose because of the outer panel separation led to blade tip rubbing, particularly on the fan and booster sections, abradable seals. Uh, abominable. <laughs> abominable. <laughs> which caused smoke and the smell of burning to be passed into the air conditioning system. Mm-hmm. They found that the evidence indicating that the timing of the sudden recovery of the number one engine from the compressor stalling was related to the autothrottle disengagement at a point when it had demanded a lower throttle lever angle than that required for rated climb, thereby allowing this engine to achieve stabilized running at a slightly lower speed. Very nice. They found that 53 seconds before ground impact, the number one engine abruptly lost thrust as a result of extensive secondary fan damage. This was accompanied by compressor stalling, heavy buffeting, and the emission of pulsating flames. This damage was probably initiated by fan ingestion of the blade sec section released by the initial failure, which was considered to have partially penetrated and temporarily lodged within the acoustic lining panels of the intake casing before having been shaken free during the period of high vibration following the increase in power on the final approach to land. Sections of the fan blades were found below this point of the final approach, including two small fragments, which were determined to be remnants of the blade section which detached initially. They found that the fan blade fatigue fracture in initiated as a result of exposure of the blade to a vibratory stress level greater than that for which it was designed, due to the existence of a fan system vibratory mode induced under conditions of high corrected fan speed at altitude which was not detected by engine certification testing. Mm. That's why it fatigued, which is just weird. It's all the testing thing. They found that the number two engine was running normally when it was throttled back to flight idle and then shut down. Really important. It just was working. Yeah. And they Don't did the wrong thing. Don't shut down a working engine. Yeah, important. That's why you got two of them. Yeah. As it turns out. Yep. Some of them have three. Some have four. Yeah. Some have eight. 
Yeah. Some have six. Some do have six. None have 20. Thank God. No. Not yet. They found that the number two were right engine vibration reports, which appeared in the aircraft technical log during December 1988, but had been correctly addressed by ground technicians. Okay. Basically, this had happened before in the right engine. Oh, yeah. But it was fixed. They found that the engine fire and overheat detection system contained a fault which could have rendered it incapable of providing warning of a fire in either engine. However, the CVR evidence indicated that it did, in fact, provide a warning of fire in the number one engine 36 seconds before impact. There's the answer to your question earlier. Yeah, that's so much... That's so helpful, 36 seconds before... <laughs> yeah. It was, so, on, so it was on fire the whole time. But that's it when it mattered. It didn't say anything until it was too late. Yep. They found that the incidence of passengers' fatality was highest where the floor had collapsed in the forward section of the passenger cabin and in the area just after the wing. The cabin floor and the passenger seating remained almost entirely intact within the overwing and tail sections. So this is actually really important because this is where we start to get into why people died. Because this airplane actually had seats that were way overrated for the impact they had. So I'm going to completely just steal all of this from air disasters because I had a lot to cover and they covered this. So... There wasn't a fault necessarily with the seats themselves. They did not collapse or anything. They acted exactly as they should have. The problem was is that they ripped from the floor. Yeah, the floor. The yeah. floor collapsed. So there was a couple big problems that happened here. When the floor collapsed, they were all in the brace position. And at the moment that the floor collapsed, the seats were compressed together. And then people slammed into the seats in front of them and were and bent and all these things. broke their necks and stuff. What's the it's person bad. on the outside of the airplane? Yes. What? Yeah. I have no idea. Also, because I'm only counting five flight attendants. Yeah. That's the weird thing. Why is it connected to another seat? What? Was that like a lap infant? Oh, maybe. How did the lap infant survive? Yeah, there was a lap infant. That's oh. probably the lap infant. Where's the other flight attendant? One, question. Two, three, four, five, Must oh. have been seated in a seat. There was probably no jump seat oh, for them. Oh, maybe. Doesn't say who it was, though. It happens on occasion. Okay. The other big thing, which we'll talk about in a moment, is the overhead bins. I feel like overhead bins always have problems. Yep. They found that passenger survivability was improved due to the passenger seats being in the, of a design with impact tolerance in advance of the current regulatory requirements. 16 Gs these things could take. Yep, and that was more than they were required to. And that was so, more than the, the impact of this accident. The seats themselves were great. Yep. No problem with those. No, just the floor. You know. Yep. Which is part of the airframe. Yeah. Yep. They found that there was that there is considerable potential for improving the survivability of passengers in this type of impact by improving the structural integrity of the cabin floor, so as to retain the seats in their relative positions and by detailed design improvements to the seats themselves. I feel like we've covered something like this in a different episode. It was the cargo door episode mm-hmm. with the where DC tens where the floor collapsed. Yeah. Yes. Didn't that happen? Did that happen after? No, it happened before this. Yeah, but that was because of a pressure change. That was kind of different. Oh, I guess that's this was true. break this up was of the structural. Airplane. Yeah. It still shouldn't have collapsed. No, Correct. it shouldn't have. Correct. But it did. It did. They found that although the overhead stowage bins met the appropriate airworthiness requirements for static loading, 
All but one of the 30 bins fell from their attachments. Oh, no. Turns out that a crash is not static loading. Yes. Good job to that one bin, though. Yeah. Which, yeah right? <laughs> Held on for dear life. Yep. True MVP. <laughs> Which did not withstand the dynamic loading conditions in this accident. So, really important because those fell down on people. Another reason people With got trapped. With stuff inside. Yes, and actually most of them, which is the next one, they found that some of the doors in the overhead stowage bins opened during the last seconds of flight, demonstrating the need for some of the improved latching of the doors. Which so, that happens, like, sometimes it happens if there's, like, really bad turbulence or something like that. There, None of these are going to be 100% because no. you still want them to be able to open when they should. Yes. So, so the the opening and closing of them, I was like, yeah, at least like the the suitcases and stuff came out before they fell. But still, they it, fell. Should they, it? No. They <laughs> hit people. They crushed people. They trapped people. Is the important thing. They shouldn't so. fall off the top of the aircraft. No, they shouldn't. So that was the last finding I have chosen to read. Okay. Probable keys. This is not the probable cause. The cause of the accident was that the operating crew shut down the number two engine after a fan blade had fractured in the number one engine. This engine subsequently suffered a major thrust loss due to secondary fan damage after power had been increased during the final approach to land. The following factors contributed to the incorrect response of the flight crew. The combination of heavy engine vibration, noise, shuddering, and an associated smell of fire were outside their training and experience. They reacted to the initial engine problem prematurely and in a way that was contrary to their training. They did not assimilate the indications on the engine instrument display before they throttled back the number two engine. As the number two engine was throttled back, the noise and shuddering associated with the surging of the number one engine ceased, persuading them that they had correctly identified the defective engine. They were not informed of the flames, which had emanated from the number one engine and which had been observed by many on board including three cabin attendants in the aft cabin so three flight attendants noticed the flames and didn't say anything yep that's a boo-boo yep recommendations okay recommendations there is a lot but i have narrowed it down significantly there were 31 of these and we're not doing 31 of these at all oh man i know so, they recommended that the CAA consider increasing the frequency of existing engine inspections and engine health monitoring on the Boeing 737-300 and Boeing 737-400 aircraft until the causes of the engine failures are established. They recommend that the CAA should require that pilot training associated with aircraft which are equipped with modern vibration systems, and particularly those aircraft which are fitted with high-bypass turbofan engines, should include specific instruction on the potential value of engine vibration indicators in assisting the identification of an engine which has suffered a failure associated with its rotating assemblies. So, making sure that training is standard on looking at instruments that tell you when something's wrong with an engine. Yeah. Like the vibrating ones. What Vibration. a concept. Yeah. They recommend that the regulatory requirements concerning the certification of new instrument presentations should be amended to include a standardized method of assessing the effectiveness of such displays in transmitting the associated information to flight crew under normal and abnormal parameter conditions. In addition, line pilots should be used in such evaluations. So literally just using pilots as test subjects to try out new panel configurations to see if they're effective, if they work, if they can follow along when something goes wrong. Find the information they're looking for. They recommend that the CAA should require that the engine instrument system on the Boeing 737-400 and other applicable 
public transport aircraft be modified to include an attention-getting facility to draw attention to each vibration indicator when it indicates maximum vibration. So Nothing on the panel was blinking red and saying, hey, it's vibrating a lot. Right. It It just had the needle. Right. It should turn red on that indication or something like that, which with the newer airplanes and the digital displays, they do. They turn red or there's a big warning pops up and you get a warning, an oral warning. Yeah, something to grab your attention. Yes, something to tell you what exactly is going on. They recommend that the CAA should request the Boeing Commercial Airplane Company to produce amendments to the existing aircraft flight manuals to indicate what actions should be taken when engine-induced high vibration occurs accompanied by smoke and or the smell of burning entering the flight deck and or cabin. So a combined... Yes, a combined checklist. checklist. They recommend that the CAA should ensure that flight crew... Currency training in simulators includes practice reprogramming of flight management systems or any other such systems which control key approach and landing display format during unplanned diversions so they so that they remain practiced in the expeditious use of such systems. All that fancy to say that they weren't trained to do the system, so the the first officer wasn't able to put in the approach properly in the computer. He couldn't program it. Properly, so they never had the approach set up correctly. They had to do the whole thing manually. And that just needs to be practiced. It needs to be trained and practiced regularly so that they can do such a thing, since it is a major function of the airplane, and they can do it when they need to do it in a hurry. They recommended that the CEA should review current airline transport pilot training requirements with a view towards considering the need to restore the balance in flight crew technical appreciation of aircraft systems, including systems response under abnormal conditions, and to evaluate the potential of additional simulator training and flight deck decision making. Crew resource management. Yep. Crew resource management and better understanding of systems so that they respect more what the airplane can do and does. And understand how it works. Yes, and understand when something goes wrong, how to figure it out. They recommended the CAA should expedite current research into methods of providing flight deck crews of public transport aircraft with visual information on the status of their aircraft by means of external and internal closed-circuit television monitoring and recording-slash-recall of such monitoring, including that associated with flight deck presentations, with a view towards producing a requirement for all UK public transport aircraft to be so equipped they wanted basically video surveillance and also recording of any monitors. I don't think it, I don't think it matters any crash. I don't think it does either. Uh, I think in every single report we've ever read, they have always recommended to have some kind of TV. Yes. To record visual. Yeah. And some kind of image has recorder. Ever been implemented? So just stop recommending it. Right. The well, only... and it was, it's on the NTSB's most wanted list this year too. Yes. The only thing that they Not have. Yeah, the only thing that they have recommended, the only thing that has come out of these recommendations is they do get tail-mounted cameras on the larger airplanes and the new airplanes, but most of the time that's just so that they can tell when they're on the taxiway, when they're taxiing, and that's it. But they can be useful. Say an engine fails, they can review that video footage and see said failed engine. Look back to Qantas Flight 32. Yes, as an example. But most of the time those are actually there so that there are also like large marks on the wing, basically, and in that video footage they can see where the edge of their landing gear is and stay on the taxiway. Anyways, that's all beside the point. I recommend the CAA should require that for aircraft passenger seats, the current loading and dynamic testing requirements for JAR 25.561 and .562 be applied 
to newly manufactured aircraft coming onto the UK register and with the minimum of delay to aircraft already on the UK register. So new certification for the seats, basically making sure that this is complied with across the board so that they are tested correctly and they meet requirements. Right. The recommended addition to the dynamic testing requirements, the CAA should seek to modify the JARs associated with detailed seat design to ensure that such seats are safety engineered to minimize occupant injury in an impact. Just basic redesign. One more I felt was important. They recommend the CAA consider improving the airworthiness requirements for public transport aircraft to require some form of improved latching to be fitted to overhead stowage bins, and this should be also this should also apply to new stowage bins fitted to existing aircraft. I think they've gotten better over the years. Yes. Well, they've also changed significantly the way yeah. that they are designed. I really like the new ones on like the 737, the newer 737 NGs and the Maxes, where they angle, they are curved down to the wall. Yes, it puts the passenger service unit kind of up and away, but it's so much more headroom. The same thing on, like, the 777 we took to Chicago. Oh, yeah. Well, they had those, too. Yes, and they're also just tall. Oh, <laughs> right. well, yes. We have more room. Way more room. But they're, like, really nice. I always thought on the 767s, the overhead bins in the middle were way too high. You have to have, like, a yeah. tall person just to open them because they're flat against the ceiling, right. and they come straight down. Oh, yeah. I would have no hope. You would never be able to get it. No. Is that okay. it for findings? That is it. Recommendations. Oh, recommendations. Yeah, recommendations. That's uh, disappointing. <laughs> that is it. I really wish there was some more. There's plenty more that oh, I'm not good. going Let's to get through. No, them. I'm not going to read them. Oh, man. Dang. You can't make me. So that was British Midlands. Midlands Flight 92. Which was British Midland Airlines and then British Midland International or BMI. And then they had BMI Baby and then they had BMI Express. And oh, it's just a mess. And they're gone. They are long gone. All right, well, thanks, friends, for listening. Thanks to our patrons. As always, you guys are great and amazing and awesome. Again, remember to send us your celebration or fireworks stories, or again, you can always just send us a story. You don't have to have it be part of the theme. And check out the merch store on the website. Remember to become a patron. If you are so inclined. Or at least check out the page and see what is included because we have a lot of cool stuff and we have a bunch of extra content and i am telling you for a fact that there's a lot of blooper reel from this episode that you didn't get to hear sorry you won't hear probably till the end of july but if you want to hear it gotta be comedy gold it will be there it's all brendan's fault it is half brendan's fault it half of it was my fault (laughs) yeah this time yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right friends thank you so much for listening have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.